Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series for 2018-2019. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. to this warm weather. Uh, it was 22 degrees and snowing when I left yesterday, so it feels very good. Um, so we're a small group, and I'm, I'm going to... Um, we have an hour, and what I'd like to suggest is that rather than have a formal lecture and then questions, that uh, as we go, I would welcome you to interrupt me, raise your hand, call out, Let's have a, a bit of a discussion. I'm honored with my uh, honored colleagues who are here. Uh, just a little bit makes, you know, make, make, make me just that much more nervous. Uh, um, okay, so my, my topic today is reading classical Jewish texts through a contemporary lens. And I want to begin by clarifying what it is I want to speak about. My principal subject is how to read and learn from classical texts. And by classical texts, I mean everything from the Bible to late medieval texts. Um, probably that's the extent of it, because after that, you're into modern texts, and, and it's, a, it's a different ballgame. Um, and I do intend to use as the specific text, uh, as my exemplar, uh, this text, uh, Mesilat Yesharim, Path of the Upright by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, an 18th century uh, text, but one whose context or Weltanschauung, its worldview, is really medieval in, 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 uh, in, in, in many ways. Uh, and so since I'm going to use Mesilat Yesharim, I will spend a little time introducing it and letting you know a little bit about what that book is about and, the, and, and who the author is and, and what he's about. And uh, I will also briefly mention the uh, most inspiring practitioner, I believe, of this method of reading classical texts, and that is Emmanuel Levinas, whom I will talk more about uh, this evening. Uh, so that's kind of the trajectory of what I want to do. We're going to be looking at a, at a text. We're going to be talking about how to read that text. Uh, and and um, that will take most of our time. But with that as my preface, let me now begin by articulating my basic premises. Uh, so my first premise is that the authors of classical texts were neither more naive or more stupid than I am, right? So this um, is a, this may, may seem like a revolutionary doctrine, um, but 
my assumption going in when I encounter a classical text, and let me note that I'm talking about authors. So for anyone for whom the idea that certain classical texts don't have authors or their authors are divine in some way, uh, then with all due respect, we're not in the same ballpark. Right? Every text, including our most sacred texts, have authors. Um, the process by which those texts come to those authors, the process by which those authors translate ideas and insights into texts, may very well be, and I would argue is, in some sense, divine. But we're not talking about texts that come down from mountaintops fully articulated. We're talking about texts in which there is always, by definition, a human intermediary. And my assumption is that these human intermediaries, uh, as I said, are neither naive or stupid. The consequence of that premise is that anything in the text that seems to me to be naive or stupid is a problem in my reading the text, not in their having written the text, right? So I immediately have to become um, awakened, if you will, uh, to uh, and, and be sensitive to those ideas which might appear to me to be naive or simplistic or primitive, we like to say, uh, and to assume that reading them as either naive or simplistic or primitive is a prejudice on my part, right? So um, that is uh, perhaps the basic premise of what I want to talk about. And to some degree, one could argue, having said that, I've said enough, right? That's really the whole ball of wax, right? But I'll go one step further and say, in light of that principle, I um, suggest that each, in each generation, the great spiritual insights that come, however they come, to these authors are conveyed in metaphors. And there are a variety of kinds of metaphors. Some of the metaphors are literary. Sometimes they're metaphysical, right? They're abstract systems of thought. But whether they're abstract systems of thought or simple stories, they are both different kinds of metaphor. And in all cases, in all cases, the author does not intend his language to be taken literally. So that might be my second premise, right? First premise, they're not any more naive or stupid than me. And second premise is that all writing in general, but certainly all spiritual writing, all classical spiritual writing, is destroyed by literalism. Right? Literalism is the enemy of spiritual um, uh, insight. Right? He intends, this author, moreover, that his audience knows this and is familiar with their shared metaphoric system, right? So that when the author uses the metaphor, 
He intends that the audience understands that he's using a metaphor and that they share a metaphoric system in which some kind of meaning is conveyed through those metaphors generally because no other way is available to convey the particular nuances of insight that the author wants to convey. Now, there is one caveat to this principle. And it's an important caveat, particularly for our understanding of classical texts. And that is the accepted pre-modern recognition of the differences between the masses and the intellectual elite. In the pre-modern world, all texts, by and large, had to function on two levels. On the one hand, they had to carry along an entire community in which the intellectual ability of the individuals in that community varied greatly. Not unlike any community today, right? Uh, we could argue, right? So in order to, um, to convey the masses, to convey the community, the story or the abstract system of metaphysical metaphors had to speak to the, excuse the expression, lowest common denominator, right? So for some people, for example, the simple story of a seven-day creation in which on each day God unveils some new aspect of the created world is in fact intended to be taken literally, but only by those folks for whom there is no alternative intellectually but to take it literally so that they may be filled with a sense of wonder and awe and most importantly, obedience, right? So, um, so the, the metaphor does sometimes, this is why it's a caveat, function uh, on a literal level, but only for those people for whom the literal level is sufficient and necessary. For the intended, the real intended audience of the author, um, the, the story is, in fact, not to be understood literally, but metaphorically, as I said, right? So if you read the story of creation in Genesis and it fills your intellectual and spiritual needs to be taken literally, then, as the rabbis probably wouldn't have said, right? that's what it's there for. But if it appears to you to be, in fact, naive or primitive or stupid, and I'm using that word kind of to, 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 to be a little bit controversial, I suppose, then you as the reader are invited to question and to look beyond the literal level of the story and to ask what could this story be about if it isn't a literal description. Now, I'm assuming that I'm not saying anything new for everybody here, right? That most of us in the contemporary world um, 
have a sense that in fact these um, ancient texts, these classical texts, function in this way, right? Is there anybody that I'm upsetting or feels like they want to disagree? Okay. Uh, so I want to one the third the last premise then is that everything I've just said I'm arguing was well known in the pre-modern world. Uh, and then what we might call a literary spiritual tragedy occurred. And that was the beginning of the Enlightenment. Not because the Enlightenment isn't in and of itself a tragedy, Hasvashalam, I mean, it's created a, some wonderful things. Um, but what it did was that it forced the religious community to circle the wagons around certain primary texts and to claim for those texts literal truth in their opposition to the world of reason and rationality and secularism that threatened their communal existence. So the way of reading classical texts that had been um, reserved, if you will, for the lowest common denominator became the way in which the highest common denominator read the texts as well. And in a confrontation between the world of reason that was opening up and a world of, um, of, of um, retrenchment into literalism that was closing ranks, um, the fact that when we read these texts, literally they don't make sense, becomes for the enlightenment part of the equation, the excuse for abandoning the text as being meaningless in, to in total, right? Does that make sense, right? So once the claim that the texts were to be understood literally becomes entrenched, then it goes without saying that those people who are influenced by modern rational thought are going to reject them. Because who could possibly believe that the world came into existence in seven days? Despite, again, just to underline, despite the fact that it is clear throughout the entirety of Jewish literary tradition that no one believed the world came into existence in seven days. That there are hundreds of midrashim that explore what that seven-day uh, cycle means, in what way, what, how, what we should learn from it, etc., etc. Okay, so we get left with a tradition that sees itself in terms of literal reading. Uh, and, and, and on the other hand, a, a, a tradition that says, if you're going to claim that those texts are literal, they have no meaning. And that, I think, is the sort of the trajectory that we've been on for the past two, three hundred years. So the question is, what do we do about it, right, if you will? Uh, and um, for that, I want to begin to suggest uh, I want to tell you a little bit about Misilat Yisharim, uh, a little bit about Emmanuel Levinas, and suggest the, the beginning of, a, of an answer to my question, which I'm just realizing, like any good question, cannot possibly be answered in an hour. 
All right, so uh, very quickly, for those of you who are not familiar with um, Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the, the author of Misilat um, Yisharim, uh, he was born in 1707 in Padua, Italy. Uh, he was a, he, they, we believe he may have attended the university at Padua. Uh, he had a full secular education for the time. Of course, he had a profound Jewish education. Um, I've never found anybody who is famous in Jewish literature who was, whose biography doesn't contain the idea that he was an Ilui. Everybody was a genius. I don't know whether Jewish mothers wrote all the biographies uh, or, or what, but uh, he was recognized as a, as a genius and particularly a mystical genius. Uh, and uh, he began early uh, as a young man to teach Kabbalah and to write uh, on Kabbalistic theories. In fact, his writings on Kabbalah to this day remain amongst the most clear and well-written uh, Kabbalistic texts that we have, uh, because he was a wonderful Hebrew stylist. Uh, and in fact, in the late uh, 20th century, or in the mid-20th century, in, in the early years of, for example, the State of Israel, uh, Mesilei Yishorim was studied in Israeli uh, schools, not because anybody had any connection to the spiritual content of it, but because the Hebrew was so wonderful. Uh, it's very clear uh, and very lovely uh, Hebrew. Now, Padua was still recovering from the, uh, the Shabbatian debacle, right? the, the rise of Shabbatai Tzvi about 50, 75 years before Lutzato was born. Uh, and so mysticism, Kabbalah, Messianism, these were all very much suspect in the traditional Jewish community at the time. Uh, and there was a great deal of complaints about um, Utsato's work. Uh, he claimed, for example, that his mystical writings were dictated to him by an angel. Now, by the way, I don't have time to go into it, but this is a very... Uh, common trope, literary trope in, in Kabbalistic writing. Everybody who was um, a really good Kabbalist claimed that their work was dictated to them by an angel. And I would argue that right there we have an example of where a, uh, a metaphor is being used to express something that was not meant to be taken literally, right? Um, I have no doubt, I could be wrong, I suppose, but I have no doubt that there was no angel sitting on Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato's shoulder. Rather, what he was creating, the power of being able to write what he was writing, struck him as coming from who knows where, from somewhere, which he called an angel. Right? Ask any great artist how they made their art, and they will say, it just came. I don't know, right? Um, if you, um, as Rabbi Shmuley mentioned, I've had the pleasure of also writing some poetry and having it published. And if you ask me, how did this poem get here after I finished it, I'll say, I have no idea, right? I might as well say an angel dictated it to me, right? But I can't, I can't say that today because I'd get locked up. Right? 
But in the 17th or 18th century or 15th century or 13th century, when others like Rabbi Joseph Caro, whose work was also supposedly dictated by an angel, that was a literary metaphor that everyone understood, that he was talking about the power of, if you will, artistic um, or, uh, creation. Be that as it may, Ramchal, as he is known, uh, pushed the boundaries of, of mysticism a little bit to the point of making the authorities in Padua uncomfortable in light of the Shabbatian uh, events. Uh, in addition, there's a possibly apocryphal, but I like to believe it. Uh, Padua was uh, one of the main medical schools at the time in Europe. Um, I think one of three. And it was the only one that Jews were accepted in. So many Jews were sent, young Jewish men were sent from northern Europe down to Italy to go to medical school. Um, Luzzato um, gathered around himself um, a group of students that were dedicated to studying with him. Um, and they had a whole little spiritual cabal, to use that word. They, they would study Torah 24 hours a day. Right? Not individually, but each one of them would take a section of the day and study, so the Torah was being studied 24 hours. They had an ethical uh, midot uh, exercise that they had to be sure that their characters uh, um, um, reached the highest p p possible levels of, of development. Um, and this group of students was very devoted to Ramchal, and unfortunately one of them wrote to his father in Prussia a letter about how he, much he was enjoying studying with Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato and his mysticism, et cetera, et cetera. Now, think of yourself as an, uh, a Jewish parent who sent your kid to medical school in Padua and you get this letter, right? Uh, and the first thing you say is, I didn't send him to Padua to become a mystic. I sent him to Padua to become a doctor. So this person's father, in fact, complained to the authorities the uh, rabbinic authorities in Prussia, who in turn connect, contacted the rabbinic authorities in Padua. And this group of students was shut down. Um, life was made quite miserable for Ramchal. His books were seized. They were buried. Some were burned, but most were buried, thank God, because they were eventually unburied. Uh, and though he remained there under the protection of his own teacher, Rabbi Isaac Bassan, uh, it became so uncomfortable for him that he, be, he decided to leave. And he went uh, first to Prussia, where the uh, uh, Jewish authorities made it clear they were not happy to have him. So he continued until he got to Amsterdam, which he believed would be a more open city for him to work in. And he was, in fact, permitted to stay in Amsterdam, uh, but again, had to sign a pledge that he would not teach Kabbalah, right? And it was in Amsterdam, when he couldn't teach Kabbalah, that he turned his attention to writing what I call this preface to Kabbalah. Right? Mesilat Yesharim, the path of the, of the upright, is a spiritually infused ethical path. Right? But the spiritual infusion, as it were, though it occasionally skirts Kabbalistic ideas, mostly hides them or ignores them altogether because he was interdicted 
from teaching Kabbalah. But he figured, since he couldn't teach Kabbalah, he would teach what was essential preliminary to Kabbalah. Because Kabbalah had, from its inception, maintained that the spiritual power of Kabbalistic theory could be, in the wrong hands, ethically destabilizing. It had two elements that lent to this destabilization. One, that the Kabbalistic system itself suggests that while the material universe is created by the emanation of the spirot, and I'm sorry I don't have time to go into every piece of language here, but I'm assuming that you're familiar with that, right? So that the spiritual and material worlds come into being through the emanation of the energy, if you will, of the divine as it uh, descends to the lowest level, which is us. We're at the lowest level physically. But the Ein Sof, in its love and wisdom, also does an end around and sends the energy and imbues it into human beings directly. Right? This is where Adam is created and God breathes into Adam his neshama, his soul. And so human beings are at the bottom of the physical creation, but in a sense at the top of the, um, of the universe. And the purpose of human life is to act as God in the world. Right? To act as God in the world, by which is meant to bring into alignment all of the various levels of material and spiritual creation so that there will be some, some sort of uh, union between the created world and its creator. That invests human, being with, human beings with almost unlimited power, which is, by the way, true and scary, as we learn more and more every single day. Right? Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. The Kabbalists believed that in the face of that power, if you really understood the secrets of Kabbalah and understood the power that was in the hands of human beings, that like all power, that power could corrupt. And therefore, it should be hidden from those people who have not already struggled to maintain and to achieve a perfection of character. Right? So, and here's where my topic comes in, but I'm not really talking about this topic today. Uh, Musar, which is the practice of, cre of crafting this character, is a direct outgrowth of Kabbalah. Right? And so Ramchal figured, well, as long as I can't teach Kabbalah, let me teach Musar. Let me teach the preliminary to Kabbalah. Okay? All right. I think that that uh, brings us 
up to uh, looking at the actual text. Any questions, comments, complaints? Um, so we take a book written in, this, in the 18th century, but by an 18th century Jew whose mindset is essentially medieval. It could have been written in the 14th century. It could have been written in the 13th century. There's not that much difference. And we want to read it on its face. And when we read it on its face, especially if we have this attitude that we're reading a literal, uh, that we read it, that, that what is written is literally what the author wants us to understand, um, if you were to read Mesilat Yisharim, some of you maybe have, you will, if you have the experience that I generally find people have had in the, in the communities that I've worked with all over the country, is that they find it uh, off-putting to say the least. Right? Um, that it is, it seems antiquated, its assumptions are... Um, um, Simplistic, right? Uh, one of the interesting things, uh, Misrach Sherim actually is not as bad as most Musser texts. Um, Musser texts tend to be the least malleable texts in Jewish tradition, right? They, they afford the least room for interpretation, at least on the surface, right? So if you want to read the Bible, immediately you're, there, it opens itself up to interpretation. Uh, certainly rabbinic literature without, goes without saying. But, but, but Musar literature tends to, be, tends to be rather one-dimensional. God is watching you. You should do good. If you don't do good, if you do do good, you're going to get rewarded in the world to come. And if you don't go do good, you are going to get punished if not destroyed, right? That's the general theology. Um, and while Misila Yishirim is somewhat more elegant in its presentation than that, basically that's the theology that appears off the text. So now you have to go back to my first premise and second premise, right? When I read that, written by an 18th century spiritual giant, I say to myself, I don't believe that. And if I don't believe that, I have prima facie evidence to suggest he didn't believe it. So what did he believe? What was he trying to say? How can I get inside of what he had to say? How can I take his metaphors and translate them into a metaphoric template that resonates for me with the sense, at least, that if that metaphoric template resonates for me, it might very well be what he intended in his uh, choice of language. So, for example, we start a translation project. Not a translation from Hebrew to English, but a translation of ideas. I'm going to talk about four categories or four phrases in, um, in typical Musar literature that I want to define in a, in a way that perhaps is different than the way they are defined by a, a literalist viewpoint. Right? So the two of the most key terms in Musar literature, going back to rabbinic literature, are Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov. 
I see people nodding. I think maybe everybody has a sense of what that is. What is Yetzirah? Good. And therefore, what is Yetzirah Tov? The good. The good. Okay. So why is it that the rabbi said, without a Yetzirah, we can't live? The, the Yetzirah is even the source of uh, our sexual energy. Right. And uh, our ability to achieve things. Right. In many cases. Right. Is that bad? Well, we wouldn't live. So why do we call so why do we call it the evil inclination? It's very hard to control unrestrained self-interest. Right. So Yetzahara is not does not describe the energy within us. It describes the consequences of that energy unbridled. Therefore, it might be more accurate to define Yetzirah as self-absorption. Right? Self-interest is necessary to live. Without self-interest, we stop. But self, when self-interest becomes self-absorption, the consequences are Ra. Right? So when the Musar literature talks about Yetzirah, defining it as the evil inclination tends to primitivize the text. Right? You get this idea that there's some kind of evil spirit within us. Right? And, and, and the funny thing is, there is an evil spirit within us. Uh, there is this tension between self-interest and self-absorption. And I want to suggest that that's the tension that Ramchal wants us to be aware of. So when he talks about Yetzirah, he's not talking about some external evil inclination, but rather he is describing the psychological reality of human psyche, if you will, in which we are constantly on a thin border between self-interest and self-absorption. And when we can move further away from self-absorption into, into legitimate self-interest, we make room for the second term, right? Yetzer HaTov is not some good impulse that is in battle with our evil impulse, but is precisely the result of moving away from self-absorption and, um, and responding to the equally indigenous instinct that we all have, which is to do good for others. Right? It's important that we understand that in his view, psychologically, doing good for others is equally indigenous. It's equally part of our nature. In a certain sense, it's like a muscle. Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov are muscles. Yetzirah is a muscle we use all the time in order to exist. The more impediments to our existence we have, the more trauma we experience, uh, 
the more difficulties in the world we experience, the more that yetsahara, or let's now call it what it is, that self-interest becomes self-absorption. And that self-absorption gets stronger and stronger. And the weak side, right, wanting to do for the other, becomes a kind of weak muscle. Right? So Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov are metaphors. In fact, later in the book, Ramchal gets away from talking about Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov and talks in using more classical rabbinic language. He talks about only the fact that we have one Yetzirah. There is no Yetzirah Tov. There is no Yetzirah. There is only the Yetzirah. And how the Yetzer operates in the world either creates Ra or creates Tov. Right? So if you think about that in terms of contemporary understandings of human behavior, um, trauma creates traumatized people. Traumatized people create trauma in turn. I mean, I'm being a little simplistic. Um, uh, all of us would like to do for others, but we can't because we get in our own way, etc., etc. So what starts off as being a rather primitive-sounding set of terms, Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov, turn out to be deeply uh, insightful descriptions of the human psyche or the human soul. Right? So that's an example, rather simplistic, I, I admit, example of the retranslation project. Right? You have to read these texts with a new, with a with a lens that allows you to translate the 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 language, by which I believe you are accessing its original intent. Now I will say, if this was a paper in an academic community, I'd have to put a footnote here that I'm often criticized for this project because there are those who suggest that I am reading into the texts, that I am putting contemporary ideas into classical texts, and that somebody like Ramchal wouldn't have thought of this at all. So I have two responses. One, I don't believe that. I go back to my first premise. Right? If I'm going to value this person as a spiritual thinker, and I think I have a right to do so, then I need to make sure that I'm trying to make him say something that's worthy of a spiritual thinker. But the second is, I don't care. <laughs> and I say that with all seriousness. And that in, in saying that, in fact, um, no text has the meaning, necessarily, that its author intended for it it always and only has the meaning that its readers find in it. So this is not revolutionary. Right? This is the way we read texts. And there's no reason not to read these texts in a way that brings them, um, allows them to do, if you will, credit to the intellectual um, um, heritage or, or that, they, that they represent. A second example. Two very important phrases or th ideas that Ramchal uses throughout Mesilat Yesharim are Olam Hazer and Olam Haba. These two phrases give contemporary people the fits. Right? I don't believe in the world to come. 
Olam Haba. Therefore, in a certain sense, I don't really believe there's Olam Hazeh, because if this world is the only thing there is, then it really doesn't need to be referred to as Olam Hazeh, because it's not in comparison to anything else. There's just the world, right? So I, differentiating between Olam Hazeh and Olam Haba uh, not only seems uh, irrelevant, it seems even more primitive than the idea of Yetzirah and I can kind of figure out some contemporary meaning even without doing a full-scale translation of the phrases Yetzirah and Yetzirah But when it comes to Olam Haba and Olam Hazeh, I'm stymied, right? I don't believe in a world to come. I don't believe we're all going to heaven if we're good and, if, and, and we're not going to go to heaven if we're bad. And so here I will make the same claim, and this may even seem more revolutionary or radical. If I don't believe it, he didn't. If it seemed naive and uh, primitive to me, then it would have seemed naive and primitive to him. Therefore, what did he mean? How was he using this metaphoric structure? Uh, obviously, like in all interpretive work, um, supplying an interpretation doesn't necessarily mean you're right. So let me suggest that while I am going to supply an interpretation to these two terms, if you can supply a better one, I, I'd like to hear it. I, I mean that in all seriousness. What I don't want to hear is that it doesn't need to be translated. Right? If that's what you believe, you're welcome to keep that to yourself. Right? So, I translate Olam Hazeh and Olam Abba, first off, first off, as parallels to Yetzirah and Yetzirah Tov. If, if Yetzirah is self-interest, or better, self, the, the consequences of self-absorption, then Olam Hazeh is a world which is entirely constrained by self-absorption, right? It is the world in which ego runs amok. It is our world, right? And it isn't just our world today, though it seems like it must never have been this bad. In fact, it was always this way. The, the world as we encounter it is a world of self-absorption. And while there are occasional intrusions uh, into that world of something from Yetzir HaTov, uh, by and large, the world moves along as a self-absorbed entity. Um, the world of Olam Haba, however, um, is a world in which the experience of not being self-absorbed creates joy. Right? Now again, I'm sort of going quickly, but I would take me longer to, 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 to tease this out. But Olam Abba, right, all of the notions we have about Olam Abba of the world to come is that it's blissful, that it's, that it's joyful, that it is something that, that I want, right, something that is um, 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 a positive, right, 
So if I take those ideas and I then contrast them with the world of self-absorption, then I am perhaps, I would like to think, justified in suggesting that in those moments when I move from self-absorption to serving or bearing or carrying the other, I experience a moment of joy, a moment of bliss, a moment of egolessness. Now, anyone who has experienced a moment of egolessness knows that it is incomparable. Right? And it, it, it happens all the time in real life. Um, it might be when you're spending your time with a child. It might be when you're spending your time with someone who's dying on a deathbed. Um, as a rabbi, I've had various experiences in both of those directions where the time I am spending seems not to exist. I don't know if I was there for a half hour or five minutes because my ego, my self-absorption, was totally absent. And that experience is one that becomes motivational in my life. And precisely the idea in Ramak, in Ram, I'm sorry, in Ramchal, is that Olam Haba serves as a motivational power, but it can only serve as a motivational power if we have experience of it. And the experience of it occurs in these various moments that are built into our lives by which we move, as it were, from Olam Hazed to Olam Haba. So I've been struggling with uh, the dichotomy that you set up between uh, self-absorption and self-interest. And, and I think what you just did for me uh, with, with um, the notion of Olam Haba and Olam Hazed is that you gave us another way into the self-interest. And I would suggest that what you're saying is that the self-interest is really uh, relational motivation. Almost an I-thou uh, as opposed to the I-it, um, which, is, which is the absorption. Um, because the, the, the self in, in the user code is moving towards relationships with others. Is, is, is that what you're implying? Absolutely. Okay, so the third piece that I was going to mention in passing uh, is the language or the, the lens of Emmanuel Levinas that has been the, the, um, the entree point for me in terms of opening up these, these, this language, right? So... And it could, be, it could have been Boober, too. Um, except that I like Levinas better for, for some important reasons. Okay? So clearly both Boober and Levinas uh, come out of a very similar trajectory. That despite their um, commitment and involvement and engagement with secular contemporary philosophy, 
at the highest levels. Uh, they both come out of Jewish world. They both come out of Jewish texts. Uh, interestingly, of course, Levinas is a Litvak, and Buber is a Galician. Uh, Levinas is a um, is, is is ultimately uh, comfortable within the Musser movement, I would say, or at least we can bring him into that. Uh, and 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 clearly, Buber celebrated the Hasidic world. Um, and there are many implications of that, which I can't go into. Um, the basic difference between Buber and Levinas on this subject is, let me say what they agree on first. They agree on what you said, right? That the, that the, um, the totality of selfness, right, which secular rationalist philosophy and culture in general leaves us with, is, requires an intervention. And the intervention comes in the person of the other, right? When we see the other person as being fully human, when we are fully present to that human, uh, when we have learned how to avoid all objectification of that person, when we, as you say, turn that person from being an it to a thou, right? Um, we are moving from Yetzirah to Yetzirah Tov or from Olam Hazer to Olam Haba. Both of them would agree with Ramak, which I don't, keep became Ramak, Ramchal, um, which I don't have time here to, to demonstrate, but if you happen to be interested in my commentary on Misila Isharim, which is available from Jewish Publication Society, um, you will find that I, that, I, um, that I work this idea that even Ramchal does not believe that, that Olam Hazen and Olam Abba are temporal states. Rather, they are dimensions of reality. Okay, so up to that point, Levinas and Buber would both be important tools in my toolbox for translating this language. The difference between Levinas and Buber, which is a question I get asked all the time because Buber's famous and Levinas isn't, um, is that Buber's philosophy is a philosophy, is, the encounter of the I-thou for Buber is mutual, right? Um, and um, um, the encounter of the I-thou for Levinas is hierarchical. The other is not simply a, an equal other with me, because in mutuality, there is an expectation of getting something back. And once there's an expectation of getting something back, right, I'll be good to you because you're going to be good to me, then in a certain sense, you've moved out of Yetzirah, Olam Haba, and back into Olam Hazer, right? Almost by definition, as soon as you have a mutual relationship, and the mutual relationship is predicated on the fact that while I recognize you as being an, a thou, I expect you to recognize me as being a thou. For Levinas, that doesn't work. It, right? It's, it's not, doesn't go far enough. And more importantly, it doesn't reflect the insights of Jewish thought. Because Jew, in Jewish thought, the, the thou is above me. Right? I don't expect anything back 
from the Tao. I am merely commanded to serve the Tao. So that's where I would take that particular uh, point. Okay, any other questions? Because we are within five minutes of time. All right, so we have these terms, Yetzirah, Yetzirah Tov, Olam Olam Haba. There are other terms which, in the course of the commentary here, I try to translate as well. Ahavat Hashem and Yirat Hashem. Right? These are two classic Musar and rabbinic terms. Um, uh, love of God and fear of God. Right? Again, reading them literally, right? uh, they are typically words that fall flat for the contemporary reader who assumes their literal meaning. Right? I cannot tell you how often Jews have responded to me when they encounter the word Yirat Hashem by saying, I don't want a God that I have to fear. Right? Uh, and on the other hand, most of them don't mind having a God that they can love. Right? But that's because they take a booberish approach to it, figuring if, God, if I love God, God's going to love me. So in a sense, um, they trivialize the idea of Olam, of Avat Hashem and Yirat Hashem, right? Uh, so Avat Hashem, I suggest, is precisely the experience of entering Olam Haba, right? It is the experience of being filled with an insatiable desire to serve the other, right? And the joy that accrues from that experience. And Yirat Hashem is the trembling that occurs when you recognize that the obligation to love or serve the other is infinite and that you will never completely fulfill it, right? That you will always be on the path and never at the goal. So in sum, we have um, taken a look at some, a methodology for taking the language of classical texts recognizing the spiritual power of the authors behind the texts, refusing to allow ourselves to be limited to the literal nature of the text, and struggling to find um, a contemporary metaphoric language that speaks to us the way the author intended his audience to be spoken to through his metaphoric language. Important to remember, our metaphoric language is as localized as was his. Someday, people will look at people who talk about uh, the ego or the psyche or other metaphors that we use and say we're primitives, right? Because some new metaphoric system 
will have been developed to express the same truths for, <coughs> excuse me, for a different generation. But for our generation, the obligation is to make sure that these texts still and continue to speak to us. And again, while I've limited my discussion to these particularly troublesome phrases in this particular genre of Jewish literature, I would argue that the same methodology and the same obligation uh, is, is, uh, <coughs> is on us for all of our classic texts. And with that, I will say thank you. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybeitmadrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.